0: Thank you, Lord, for bringing the two of us together today. Lord, your word and us. Father, I pray that that the two would become one, that your word would go into our hearts and become us, that would change us, Lord. We ask ask that you would uh, give us ears to hear what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Last week, we began to look at the first chapter of James. In verses 1 and 2, we found the following. If we're going to seek position in life, then we should seek that of the lowest, a doulos, a slave for the Most High, God Himself. And we become a doulos through our new birth, through faith in Jesus Christ. Then in verse 2, we considered the unusual proposal that we should not consider all misery and gloom when hard times come upon us. We looked at the idea that there would be both internal and external consequences to our responses to trial, and then we went on to discuss how trials are effective moulding tools for our character in the sanctification process, and that is in the hands of our loving Father in heaven. We identified eight purposes God has in allowing trials to test us, and I'm going to briefly list them again as follows. Trials test our faith. Trials humble us. Experiencing trials will reduce our dependence on worldly things. Trials give us the hope of heaven. Trials expose the true object of our love. Trials teach us the true value of God's blessings. Trials develop spiritual muscles. And lastly, the experience of trials helps us to help others. Having finished this brief summary, let's turn now to James 1 and read what God has to say to us today. Today, we're going to deal with verses 3 through to 8. And please, let's remember that James is not about deep theology, but about the practical application of what we know to our lives, the working out of what God has worked in. Starting in verse 1. James a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance be perfect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and he will be given it. But he should ask in faith, not doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed about by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, since he is a man of two minds, unstable in all his ways. So we'll start to look then at verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. In verse 2, we heard what we should feel when we encounter trials. Verse 3 gives us the because, the why we should feel this way, by starting with the word for. This is very important because understanding why we need to endure gives us a goal, something to hold on to. The knowledge that we can look forward to a specific result will enable us to grit our teeth and hold on, whereas knowing that there is no purpose to hardship encourages us to give up easily. And I have a personal testimony in that, which is um, rather earthly, because I find that a bar of chocolate is a great incentive for me to finish writing my sermon, because I kind of eke it out, you know, two bits at a time. If I finish this bit, then I can have two pieces. Now, James uses the Greek word gnosco for know, or in some translations it actually says knowing. It conveys the, f- the idea of a full understanding that is the result of not just having the facts, but also have, of having the t-shirt. You know, I've been there and I've done it, so I really know. The word re- rendered testing is darkimium and is used only three times in the whole Bible. In the first of these, in 1 Peter 1, it appears to refer to the product of testing. And uh, I'll read that. So so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that is perishable, even though tested by fire, may prove to be for praise glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. However, in the Old Testament, this word actually refers to the process by which silver or gold is refined by fire, and an example of this is in Proverbs 27. As the crucible tests silver and the furnace gold, so a man is tested by the praise he receives. Now, it seems very likely, especially given the Jewish nature of James's audience, that this was exactly the meaning that he wanted. He was conveying the idea that the experiencing of trials would produce spiritual maturity in us as the imperfections which mar our faith are burned away. You know, the issue is not to show whether a person has faith or not, but to purify and strengthen the faith that they do have. Job 23, verse 10 illustrates this directly. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come out like gold. There is a quality that we develop from successfully enduring hardship called perseverance. It comes from knowing that because we have done this or something similar before, we can do the same again or even move on to something else harder with success. It's a translation of the Greek word hupomone, which is sometimes rendered patience. But patience doesn't really have the right connotations. This word hupomone is, is difficult to adequately express in English because it embodies the ideas of fortitude, staying power, and heroic endurance. It isn't a passive response to circumstances which you could perhaps associate more with patience, but it is strong active and challenging you know when i consider this word i have the mental picture of a man bursting out of the water and just shouldering its encumbrance aside and coming free to take a breath of fresh air it's key to remember that throughout this process no matter how dire it may seem we are not alone and i was thinking very much about this when we were hearing the testimony a moment ago God is with us every step of the way. In fact, to use that term step is just too coarse a measure to use by far because there is no human measure for the closeness with which God attends to us. More than just accompanying us as an observer, he will lend us strength and his aid. In Psalm 40 verses 2 to 4, David testified, I waited Waited for the Lord, who bent down and heard my cry, drew me out of the pit of destruction, out of the mud of the swamp, set my feet upon rock, steadied my steps, and put a new song in my mouth. A hymn to our God. Many shall look on in awe, and they shall trust in the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians 10, we are told, No trial has come to you, but what is human. God is faithful and will not let you be tried beyond your strength. But with the trial, He will also provide a way out, so that you may be able to bear it. God will never look away or let us go. He gives us a special security that is denied to those who are not believers, and we really have to ask whether we would be able to persevere without that security. God secures us with every aspect of His character, Firstly, we are secure because of the power of God the Father. In John ten, twenty eight and twenty nine, Jesus says I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can take them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can take them out of the Father's hand. Secondly, we are secure because Jesus prays and intercedes for us. Last. Last week we heard Jesus say to Peter in Luke 22. Just listen here, folks. You know, it's so easy to just say we heard Jesus say. Just remember, we are reading from the inspired Word of God. Let's imagine, this is really Jesus speaking to us. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed that your own faith may not fail. And once you have turned back, you must strengthen your brother's. Jesus makes this prayer for us too. Hebrews 7.25 tells us, Therefore He is always able to save those who approach God through Him, since He lives forever to make intercession for them. Although we remain as sinners, Jesus is eternally present in heaven to make us acceptable to God through His death on the cross. You just cannot find better security than that. Lastly, we are secure because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians one thirteen and fourteen. In him you also who have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and have believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, which is the first instalment of our inheritance towards redemption as God's possession to the praise of his glory. And then in verse thirty of Ephesians four, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with which you were sealed for the day of redemption. We are triply secure in God's hands. We can never be taken away from Him, no matter what may happen in our temporal day-to-day lives. This is marvelous and beautiful. Praise God for giving this security to us, although we are completely undeserving. Let's try to paraphrase what we've learned from verse 3. And by the way, please, I'm not suggesting a new translation. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials... Because you know from experience that your faith will be improved and purified when you've pushed through what seems to be impossible troubles. This will give you the strength to try new things and the perseverance to carry on when similar problems come along. Know that you are not alone. God is managing your progress with love and He will never let you go. So we've had the what and why parts. Now in verse 4 we move on to the and then section. And let perseverance be perfect, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now this word perfect, which is used twice, comes from the Greek teleos. And it doesn't suggest that which is instantly and wholly without flaw. Bing! Now I have perfect perseverance. It's not like that. It's more a sense of something that has become fully developed through a refining process. Our ability to persevere will become greater as we practice it and embrace the opportunity to do so through trials. We then move towards a place where our ability will be mature and able to endure anything. If we follow this thought through, we will soon realize that we are really talking about our tendency to sin. Now, God would obviously love us to achieve the ability to not sin, but we know that as humans this is going to be impossible as long as we are here on earth. And, you know, should this cause us to despair and and not try at all? Well, of course not. We must continually strive as hard as we can as as our little contribution to the process of sanctification through the practical application of our faith. Of course, the consequence of an improved ability to keep going in the face of adversity will be an improved character, as the second part of the verse shows us, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does James mean when he says we will be perfect? Is this perfection attainable during our lives, or is it something that we can look forward to later? James uses that, uh, that particular word on three other occasions. Uh, in in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, all good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no alteration or shadow caused by change. Then in one twenty five, But the one who peers into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres, and is not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, such a one shall be blessed in what he does. And then lastly in, in uh, James 3.2, For we all fall short in many respects. If anyone does not fall short in speech, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body also. In these three instances, James identifies the perfect state both with heaven and a human condition that all of us know is just not going to happen here on earth. He is showing us the very loftiness of the goal, not to discourage us or put us off, but to demonstrate that to attain it we will need to strive with all of our might. Last week I told you about my Outward Bound course and the comment of a previous participant, which was, a mind that has been stretched by new experiences can never return to its former dimensions. I'd like to go back to this because stretching has a bit of relevance to perseverance. Stretching has two dimensions. There is the, oops, I hung my favourite jersey carelessly, and now it is stretched and basically unwearable category but there is the also more desirable sense of stretching and growing something in an orderly and managed way. Just think about how a child physically grows to the size of an adult. Imagine how enormously complex that process is. Muscles must get bigger, bones grow longer, nerves grow in new places, blood surprise must increase in the right place, and it all has to happen in perfect harmony, because if any one thing goes wrong, then there is disaster. God stretches us in an orderly way through trials towards that perfect spiritual character. In the same way that an adult has superior physical strength to a child, we will then have superior spiritual strength. As we gain the new strength, we must use it. Our aim must turn towards new challenges. When we understand how God holds us in His hand securely, and how lovingly he intends his training, then we will be able to face the future and new things without fear. This is the kind of stretching that James is encouraging. Properly exercised perseverance is a kind of control process for the stretching action of trials. If we do not persevere, we may end up with a shapeless jersey kind of life, and that, I pray, is something none of us desire. It's worth noting that there are no shortcuts in the process. If we want the right end result, then we must work through all the steps. We might groan when we hear that old saying, no pain and no gain, but the wisdom and challenge of it is still there. James now goes on to talk about wisdom being a prerequisite for perseverance in verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and he will be given it. Why would James have made what seems to be a bit of a jump off subject? To help answer this, let's try to answer a few questions about wisdom. Well, firstly, what is wisdom? Wisdom is a kind of a blend between experience and knowledge, applied practically and with insight. I may have done this before and or I may know how to do it, but unless I correctly apply that knowledge and experience, I can still end up with a disaster. Wisdom is a crucial element in the successful progression of our lives. Without it, we are destined for failure. My late grandfather was very fond of quoting this little verse to me when I was a child. He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Shun him. He who knows not, and knows that he knows not, is a child. Lead him. He who knows, and knows not that he knows, is a sleeper. Wake him. He who knows, and knows that he knows, is wise. Follow him. Now this points out the desirability of wisdom. As a man, I do not wish to be considered a fool, a child, or a I have responsibilities to faithfully execute And there is no doubt that wisdom will assist me enormously to do so secondly where do we get wisdom some fortunate few of us may already be blessed amply with wisdom however i can certainly speak for myself when i say that uh, i could sure use a lot more than i seem to have we may talk about wisdom as being only accumulated experience this is the school of holding the match until we get blisters. Given the damage this type of learning causes to ourselves and others, it's hard to imagine how it can be associated with real wisdom at all. Real wisdom will allow us to work out the consequences of holding the match for too long before we light it. There certainly is an element of experience to wisdom, however, but it is how we gain the experience that counts. I can have successful, and unsuccessful experiences. I can observe the results of others' experiences. I can listen to others talk about what they have done, but how will I use that information? This is where the special quality of wisdom appears. It's not something you can go to a store and buy, but it is a gift. In Job 28, verses 12 to 22, we are told quite comprehensively where we will not find it. But whence can wisdom be obtained, and where is the place of understanding? Man knows nothing to equal it, nor is it to be had in the land of the living. The abyss declares, it is not in me, and the sea says, I have had it not. Solid gold cannot purchase it, nor can its price be paid with silver. It cannot be bought with gold of Ophir, or with the precious onyx, or the sapphire. Gold or crystal cannot equal it. Nor can golden vessels reach its worth. Neither coral nor jasper should be thought of. It surpasses pearls and arabian topaz. Nor can it be valued in pure gold. Whence, then, comes wisdom? And where is the place of understanding? It is hid from the eyes of any beast. From the birds of the air it is concealed. Abaddon and death say, Only by rumour have we heard of it. And by the way, Abaddon is the angel of the bottomless pit, so... There's no wisdom in hell. Then we are told very specifically where we will find wisdom as we continue to read in verse 23 and 24. God knows the way to it. It is He who is familiar with its place, for He beholds the ends of the earth and sees all that is under the heavens. So when we lack wisdom, we should ask God. James is not only showing us where we can get this attribute, but he is also removing the excuse not to act. God calls us to act and gives us the means to do so. Thirdly, why should we need wisdom when we are facing trials? Well, I thought it would be helpful if we stood that on its head to try and get the answer. if I face trials without wisdom, what's going to happen? Well, firstly, the trials will most probably be prolonged. Secondly, the trials are going to be repeated. They're going to happen again and again. And thirdly, I might become broken and discouraged as a result. And none of these outcomes are desirable. If wisdom can allow us to escape those outcomes and progress towards what God desires for us, if we know where we can get the wisdom after we've been told he should ask God, then it becomes obvious that James really hasn't left a subject and has remained as practical as ever. The he should ask part is a translation of an imperative verb in the Greek. Imperative means we must. We must ask God. How does that position us? It puts us in the correct place because we are then recognizing God is sovereign and not relying on our own strength or experience. We are obeying a divine command. We remain then with the balance of the verse. Who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and he will be given it. The Greek word translated generously is haplos, which comes from a root, meaning single or simple. James's intention is to highlight God's unreserved, uncalculating, and unwavering intent to give his gift of wisdom to those who ask. God gives ungrudgingly. There are some who may give in abundance, but will use the opportunity to point out just how generous they are, and our own failings at the same time. But God does not. God does not say, What? You again? What did you do with what I gave you last time? He simply gives to those who ask again and again and again. James moves on from how God gives to how we should ask Him. But he should ask in faith, not doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed about by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, since he is a man of two minds, unstable in all his ways. It seems to me that there is something about the order in which request and response are given. Ask for wisdom, and if you have faith, I will give it to you. Now if I rephrase this a little bit, if you ask me nicely, I will give you a sweet, is subtly different to I will give you a sweet if you ask me nicely. In the first instance, my capability and willingness to act need to be added to by your behavior before any result can be achieved. God doesn't need our help to act, but He does want evidence of our commitment, and He does want us to recognize His ability to grant His requests. When we first look at this this verse, it seems that the requirement to ask without doubting will disqualify all of us because we all doubt at some time. However, the doubting James is speaking of is of the belt and braces variety. The man who holds his trousers up with a belt and braces is one who has only 50% trust in either. (laughs) I'm sure that you will have at some stage heard the argument that a commitment to God is of no harm if it turns out that He is just a myth because you will have lost nothing. That's just horrible. In fact, you will have gained nothing to lose. God calls us to trust Him with our whole heart as we see in Deuteronomy 6.5. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The man who is of two minds, or double-minded, is not wholly committed to God. He plays safe by praying. His principal interest is position or advancement in the world, but he would also like to enjoy some of God's benefits and be sure to go to heaven when he dies. The Greek word used for double-minded is dysikos, which means literally (coughs) double-souled. Excuse me for a moment. Beth, thank you. Now this word deipsychos is indicative of the depth at which the division is evident. We understand the difference between uncertainty in our minds, which is relatively unimportant, and the deep convictions of our hearts. Because this uncertainty is so deep, right at the level of our soul, it will pervade our whole character, and this is why James says that the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. We must test our hearts to be sure that this does not describe us, because if it does, we are completely deluded and will miss out on the greatest gift offered to man. In fact, the stakes are far higher than merely passing up on a gift, because the the alternative we will then receive is the awfulness of God's wrath and His punishment of eternity in hell. James's picture of the doubting man being like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed about by the wind is a great mental image. As folk who live by the sea, we clearly understand just what he means. However, this picture too has depths. You know, the sea is a great mass of water, much harder to move than the wind. Yet, with persistence, that relatively small force working on just the surface can cause great confusion both on that surface and in the sea below it. We might believe that we are strong, But Satan will persistently blow against us to cause the same confusion if we are not firmly anchored to God by single-hearted faith in Him. We've done well today. Six verses and we've learned a great deal. Testing produces perseverance. Perseverance allows us to stretch and grow in an orderly way into the person God desires us to be. We are never alone in that testing god always manages it and always watches over us we know that wisdom facilitates growth and we know that we must ask god for it and that he will give it to us when we ask the gift of wisdom is not unqualified however we must have the right attitude of heart to receive it well that's my sermon today a short one i hope you're pleased to hear but it certainly spoke to me. I am eagerly looking forward to future occasions to share God's word with you, to see what else James has to say to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the many, many gifts that you offer us. Thank you, Lord, for your promise to give us wisdom. I pray that none of us would tarry and not ask you for that wisdom today. As we go forward into this week, Lord, I pray that we would be witnesses for you, and that we would hold on to you no matter what trials we may encounter. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.